Why do we humans go to war? Seriously, why do we do it? When the costs are so high, even for the winners. You know, in some sense, the more concentrated power is, the more likely we are to go to war. And for several reasons, but the big one is, remember what I said, we go to war when we forget the costs of violence and we choose bloodshed instead of politics. And the more concentrated is power, the more unchecked and unaccountable are our leaders, the more the costs they can ignore. They, you know, if you're an absolute autocrat, what do you care about the soldiers dying or the citizens dying? Or you care a little bit, maybe, but but you can afford to ignore a lot of those costs. And you might even see it as your your interest to go to war. Uh, because it, it doesn't help your whole group and all your citizens, but it might help you cling on to power. Did you know that democracies seldom go to war? And when they do, it's usually against autocracies and not against other democracies. Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 27th, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of Appeal.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel.News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. This is how it usually works in our program. I share a specific news item with you or a series of related news items and from there I introduce our distinguished guest who then talks about the history behind the specific news. But we've already had several episodes that peel the history behind war-related news from Ukraine, Russia, Poland, and soon we'll have an episode on Finland. So, in this episode, instead of peeling the history behind news, let's peel the reason behind the news. Why did Mr. Putin start this war? Or why does any autocracy, country, clan, or gang start a war, particularly when the costs are so high? Interestingly, there are five reasons why conflict triumphs over compromise. Five reasons why we go to war. I know this because Mr. Christopher Blattman explained them to me. He is a professor of global conflict studies at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Professor Blattman is faculty member in the Pearson Institute for the Study and Resolution of Global Conflicts and focuses on why some people and societies are poor, unequal, and violent and how to tackle these issues. And you'll note from my conversation with him that he has spent much time with gangs, as in street gangs and drug cartels, and he aptly extrapolates their compromises and conflicts to scenarios of war and peace between states. His latest book just published in April. It's titled, Why We Fight. In it, he argues that war is hard and finding peace is easier than you think. This is a refreshing argument, and with what's going on in the news these days, you can intuit why I would want to speak with Professor Blattman. You can learn about him by visiting his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. We've also provided a link to his latest book, Why We Fight. So stay with me as Professor Blattman and I peel the reasons behind why us humans go to war.
Professor Blotman, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thanks. So since the 1970s, John Lennon's famous song, Give Peace a Chance, became sort of an anthem uh, of the American anti-war movement. It's a great song, but that's not why I mentioned it here. For me, the song begs a seminal question. Isn't war inherent to our nature, to human nature? It's easy to think that. Uh, especially now, right? Especially now. Uh, I'd say a couple of things. One is I think we are a I think we're inherently cooperative species. That actually is one of the things. We are that, cooperative species. That's yeah. oh wow, okay. I mean, that's that's the thing that really distinguishes us from from other species is we're really good at cooperating. Uh, and 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 then we do have disputes, and sometimes those disputes have end up in violence, whether it's individuals or nations and everything in between. the The problem is the reason we feel like wars in our nature. I think is that it's easy to pay attention to the wars that happen and not the ones that don't. And so, for example, uh, about two weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, India accidentally lobbed a cruise missile at Pakistan and common suit. And, 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 you know, newspapers did report it. There was a New York Times article. You had to scroll through it, 17 pages of Ukraine news before you could find it. It, it wasn't on, on, on headline on page A1, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and that's true. And, and, not, and then we remember, we, we, remember the, we, we, we remember the wars that happened and, and we, don't, we don't remember the wars that, that didn't. So, you know, American school children are going to be learning about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan for generations. And, uh, and none of them are going to learn about the U.S. invasion of Haiti in 1994, which is when, with the backing of the United Nations, Colin Powell and Jimmy Carter go to uh, a general who's just seized power um, from a democratically elected president. And they show him a video that has American, shows American troops and equipment taking off in planes. And they say, that's not uh, a live feed. That actually happened a couple hours ago. They're almost here. And the general capitulated right there. And the US had a brief occupation of Haiti before they handed it over to UN forces. And, 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 and so there was a, you know, there was something avoided. The, the, that war never happened. And because, well, that's why you compare it with Afghanistan. That's a war that yeah, never happened. I see. It's a war that never happened. You know, the, the general decided not to fight. It seldom makes sense, right? War would just have been so ruinous that most of the time, both sides just try to avoid it, right? They, they settle in, in various ways. Uh, and, and we just need to pay attention to those, right? So in a way, wars that didn't happen uh, are just not sexy news or not news at all. They're not sensational. Yeah, and we, we don't, you know, but once my hope with the book, you know, and I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight, right? I, both, I wrote a book called Why We Fight. So obviously we fight, okay? Uh, <laughs> war, is, war is definitely in our Good nature point. somewhat, and it happens. And 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 if, I sort of liken it to being a doctor. You know, we have to focus on the critically ill, and we want to research treatments, and we want to get better at diagnosis, right? But we also want to remember that most people are healthy. And, and if we were, if I, was in a, if I was a doctor in the intensive care unit, and I never knew that healthy humans existed, I'd be pretty demoralized. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not working job. that hard, right? And, and I'd probably be really bad at diagnosis and treatment. So that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to start from the point of view uh, that most of the time, this fighting, long, prolonged violence doesn't happen um, in order to sort of have better diagnosis and, and better treatment. Are we rational beings when it comes to war? Do we inch closer and closer to war sort of in a series of rational, mm -hmm. logical steps? Yeah. Uh, at some point to become like a cascade of steps, I guess. We certainly can. I mean, what I lay out in the book, what I tell people, if you remember one thing, it's that uh, war's ruinous. Of course, yeah. And every answer to why we fight is some reason that we ignored those costs. And, and then what I lay out in the book is there's 
only so many ways we do that. And a couple of those, at least a couple of those are rational in the way that you're thinking. They're strategic and a cold calculating person can actually end up at war. Um, the, but, but, but then there's, there's other ways in which, it's not so much that we're not, we're, some ways in which are irrational, some ways in which we're biased, some ways in which you know, our values and our ideologies come into play that also drive us to war. So there's, 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 there's more than one reason. Um, we're analyzing war, and I think I got asked this question because this this is this this will help us, yeah. help me anyway. What is the game theory? Yeah. So when you say, "Are we rational? Can we go to war?" Well, th this is where, you know, this is where we have to lay out. We have to think through. I have to think through. Let's suppose you're we're adversaries. I have to think through how you're going to react to my actions and how you're thinking about it. And I have to sort of think about this series of steps that every decision I make and all my potential decisions could eventually result in. That sounds that's like chess. It is, it's just strategic thinking. And game theory is just the, the codified way in which we analyze this strategic interplay. And, and, and a lot of people grasp a lot of game theory very, intuitively anyone who's ever played poker uh, you know anyone who's ever um bargained for something in a market or over a used car you're 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 thinking inherently trying to choose your actions based on how you think your adversary is going to behave and 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 you're probably drawing some correct strategic conclusions so so you're using game theory all the time um and but but what's funny is when we when it comes to war often we're, we, we sort of, we're much better armchair psychologists. We, we're really good at seeing the ways in which uh, societies are more important, their leaders are sort of psychologically flawed, or we, we, it's harder to see the strategic or these game theoretic causes of war. And so why we fight is actually trying to lay out both. And so it has to teach you a little basics of game theory um, in order to, un because, because that, because rational man, does does cause an awful lot of war. Couple of follow-up questions. Um, one uh, regarding the analogy mm -hmm. of that you you chose bargaining. If I go to a supermarket or a flea market of some sort, uh, like a farmer's market, um, there's no cost to bargaining. Uh, yeah. As long as you know, I'm not shouting at anyone, there's yeah. no cost. So I can just just have at it, uh, yeah. work hard. but war has a cost. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a little bit of a distinction there and, and it's an important one. But, but, but actually, if I can jump in, that's key, please. right? And that's why, right? And that's why we, the, it, it, you kind of hit on something, which is in some ways a really simple and game theoretic insight, which is that the less costly is fighting, the more likely I am to engage in it, especially if I have some other reason to like, you know, maybe I get a kick out of it. Right, so I'm willing to overlook those costs. <laughs> Kick so, out of it. So, so, but if if listen, if if you you know if if you were in a, a market trying to buy a carpet, and you you and the other person knew that if you didn't conclude this transaction, that the store was going to explode, right? <laughs> uh, then then you know you'd probably find a deal. And, that's and a that's, lot of pressure there, Professor. Yeah, and that's so that's kind. Of, that's why we mostly don't fight, is because because that's that's the basic insight that war is costly. You know, it was you know, uh, uh, von Clausewitz sold us told us that 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 you know, war is just politics by other means, and Chairman Mao said war is just politics with bloodshed, and 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 so they both grasped this insight that fighting is just a kind of bargaining but mm -hmm. it's a really, really costly kind of bargaining. And so whenever possible, we try to use politics instead of bloodshed to settle our differences, except when we don't. Um, is there an assumption in the game theory, that's my second question, uh, sure. that we have the same information? Because in war, um, you know, I mean, in the U.S., we're so used to our intelligence, superb intelligence and satellite uh, images and what have you. But yeah. in war, there's much that operates in darkness, especially in the older days. Like you, you don't know what the enemy, you don't even know where it is. Hitler didn't know that they're going to land in Normandy. He, he, yeah. he, he put up his uh, 
major defenses, uh, I think, to the north. Um, so, yeah. So if you took, you know, an introductory course to game theory, or you just listened to one lecture, actually, they'd talk about this thing that sounds super complicated. They'd say, well, there's games of complete information, games of incomplete information, which is to say there are lots of strategic interplays when you don't have the same information. And now that sounds super complicated, but I guarantee you that you and most of your listeners already get this because imagine playing poker, right? Uh -huh. You know, you know your opponent doesn't know your hand, and you don't know your opponent's hand. Of course. Right. And 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 so now you have to decide whether or not to bluff. Right. And mm -hmm. you also have to decide if if they bid things up, whether you think they're bluffing or not. So you're making the strategic calculations based on uncertainty. And and you know, you know, you 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 might not like you don't need like to write out the math to realize that like your optimal strategy is not just to fold every time just because yeah. someone's bid up, right? You get that like, ah, oh, you know, I have to like mix it up a little bit. I have to sort of be a bit unpredictable. And then sometimes when I'm worried my opponent's bluffing and I don't believe anything they're telling me because I know they have an incentive to try to get me to fold, uh, sometimes I have to call, even if it, even if it's really costly. Right? Well, and all of that is part of the game theory. That's just, and that's just one of the basic insights that comes from, you know, in the book, I say there's five, there's five reasons for war. Two of them require us to get these strategic insights. And one of them is, that's the dominant one when it comes to what I call uncertainty, is when there's uncertainty, uh, you know, not only might we start with different information, so I think I'm strong, stronger than you, because I don't really know your strength. So we might just have different sets of information. But then anything you tell me to the contrary, I never fully believe, right? And so I'm, I'm always gambling whether I should call or fold. And, and, then, and, and, it can get, and then it gets a little bit more complicated when you know, there's six other adversaries standing around the table looking at us trying to say, okay, well, whatever he does, if, if he looks weak, well, maybe I'll attack him next. So you're also thinking about all these other people. Yeah, it's a complex. And, 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 that, and, and so that uncertainty and that kind of strategic calculus is something that every, um, every leader in, in some kind of contest has to always be thinking about. And they are. And it explains and it helps us. It's not the whole story, but you can't understand um, I think you can understand the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I think you can understand world wars. I think you can understand Putin's invasion of Ukraine without understanding that uncertainty at least plays some role. And we're going to talk about leaders in the next segment. Why don't sure. we take a short break and then talk about democracies and autocracies and their pension for war? Yeah. The war in Ukraine is inspiring lots of questions, such as who are Ukrainians? What's the history of wars between Ukraine and Russia? And what's the history of revolutions in Russia? And here's another one. What's the history between Poland and Ukraine? Wasn't Western Ukraine a part of Poland in the past? In fact, for a long time. And finally, now that Ukraine is beating back Russia, we wondered if another smaller country similar to Ukraine has successfully defended itself against Russia in the past? The answer is Finland, who is now interested in joining NATO. A professor from Helsinki will soon join us to talk about Finland's war with the USSR and its aftermath, such as Finland's, quote, whole of society participation in military preparation. The links for all these conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Blattman. Professor Blattman, are most wars instigated and schemed by the ruling elite? Well, in the sense that most societies for most of human history have basically been a small ruling elite over the masses until very recently when we have you know more and more exceptions yes and uh but it's you know in some sense the more concentrated power is the more likely we are to go to war and for several reasons but the big one is remember what i said 
we go to war when we forget the costs of violence and we choose bloodshed instead of politics. And the more concentrated is power, the more unchecked and unaccountable are our leaders, the more the costs they can ignore. They, you know, if you're an absolute autocrat, what do you care about the soldiers dying or the citizens dying? Or you care a little bit, maybe, but but you can afford to ignore a lot of those costs. And you might even see it as your your interest to go to war. Uh, because it, it doesn't help your whole group and all your citizens, but it might help you cling on to power. Empires, self-aggrandizement and all of that, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it's um, it's it's a big, it's a big it's a big role. It's it's one of these five reasons that we ignore costs. And you know, the people who are deciding on war aren't aren't liable for some of them. How do these autocrats, we call them autocrats now, um, just a hundred years ago we would call them a little more than a hundred years ago, we would call them kings and emperors and exactly. queens, like you know, Catherine the Great and what have you. Um, how do they persuade people? to go along to war. And I use the word persuade uh, sort mm -hmm. of cautiously here because they could just decree, you know, uh, yeah. proclaim. It's not really persuade. But how did they continue this? I mean, what is empire to a farmer? Uh, yeah. to, you know, how did that? It just this is a recurring theme in the yeah. last 5,000 years. Yeah, so, so this is, you know, I mean, sometimes the answer is at the point of a sword or with the barrel of a gun, right? But uh, but that but only you, goes so far, right? That only goes so far. No, you do. You you want to mobilize and motivate people. So I think skillful politicians are ones who can inspire ideologies and ideas that that motivate people to to um, to fight. That especially especially if they fight on the cheap, right? The the more you're intrinsically motivated to fight, the less you have to pay them in wages, right? <laughs> And and so you you actually want you know the, the better you are at this as a politician the cheaper it is for you to arm in the sense of having bigger armies, uh, because you don't have to pay them as much to they're, they're willing to join. Likewise, um, the you know I, I get but here's the thing like there's a distinction there's a really important distinction between arming and fighting, right? It's actually in my interests as a as a king or an autocrat or even a democrat, you know, as a president to uh, do that as well, right? Because what I wanted is my, you know, I do have an adversary. There's something we're fighting over. Like do what as well, to go to war? Is that what you meant? Well, here's the thing. We're, we're in a, we're in a dispute. like we both want this territory maybe, or we both want, you know, we want to decide on what the, the way the world is going to organize itself. Is it going to be capitalism or communism? There's all sorts of things that we, we compete about over. And then my bargaining strength versus that other person, other other adversary is is part of is, is basically my ability to threaten to burn the house down, right? The more arms I have, the more people I can mobilize, the more uh then the bigger the share of the pie or territory or whatever it is I can probably claim. Without share that booty, that loot with yeah exactly with the participants, right? Right. That's the like it's sort of like it, it's you know, it's sort of like playing poker. The better the cards, if I know that I can get better cards than my opponent, of course we don't. That's why the game is more fair. But if I could systematically improve my cards, then I'd always win more pots. And so I, anything I can do to arm better and motiv motivate my people is going to give me more bargaining power. Now, it still doesn't make sense to fight, right? It actually just makes sense for us both to arm as much as possible in the hopes of, of uh, basically having more leverage over the other party. And then the more we arm, the more costly war is, and the more we want to avoid it because it's going to be a disaster. Yeah, uh, like and a so nuclear war. Yeah, I, I'm up that, and that's the extreme, and that, and, and so, so you know, that's I've simplified things a little bit, but that's that's the that's like the paradox here. We have these huge incentives to arm, but once we've armed, we have huge incentives to find some to actually just settle our settle this. Uh, divide this pie or territory or whatever it is in, in a way that doesn't require us to use them. You know, uh, as I was preparing for our conversation, uh, I had this, you know, I was thinking of kings, queens, autocrats, and what have you. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about democracies. Yeah. Uh, how often uh, do we democracies go to war? The only one actually I can, I can actually think of is the 
Falklands War between mm-hmm. Argentina and uh, UK. I'm sure you perhaps you can think of more. Yeah. But how does that? How often does that happen? And also, are democracies less likely to go to war? I asked that question with very one specific point in mind. Our country, the U.S., has gone to war. Yeah, a lot. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to say more than any other country, but I can't think of another country that has fought more in the 20th century. Let's just pick the 20th century. Don't even get sure. into 21st than the U.S. And mm-hmm. we're not always the initial belligerents, obviously, but still. Yeah. So, so how does this war, you know, analysis come down when we talk about democracies? Sure. So. There is something called the democratic peace, which is that democracies don't usually fight one another. And there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is just that you have two groups that are where the leaders are never perfectly accountable, but are more accountable for the costs. And so they're less liable to this mistake of, of overlooking the costs because, because uh, they, they'll be held accountable, you know, at the at the polls eventually. Although, you know, it's worth saying that democratic leaders might have some incentives for war. I talked about, you know, they're not perfectly checked. So if, if, uh, if I'm a president and I think, you know, I might lose an election due to a sex scandal or something else, and I think I can distract everybody or get some popular support by bombing this country or evading that one, that I think historically, it's not actually true that that's a great strategy, but a lot of presidents think it might be a good strategy. And that's all all it takes. They just have to think that's a good strategy. So, so that can happen. Um, but, but democracies, as you pointed out, do go to war a lot. When they do, they tend to go to war against autocracies. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, we've just gone through a few of the reasons. We've talked about one, which is you know uncertainty, and we've talked about the sec- second of these five reasons, which is these unchecked leaders not incorporating the costs. I think the reasons democracies go to war against autocracies sort of draw on some of these other reasons. It's not so despite being checked, they have their other reasons for for going to war. And but you know, maybe we'll we'll loop back to this in a minute. We'll be back after a short break to talk about why we fight. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Blotman, your recent book is titled Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. Does your PhD in economics impact this book, impact how you analyze war? Mm -hmm. So definitely, um, you know, the the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, I have a PhD in economics. Most of my jobs are in political science departments. So I sort of became- That's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah, And then I married a psychologist. I do a lot of my research with psychologists. (laughs) And, And so what I was aiming to do in the book was to bring all three of these together and to show how- to sort of not to say here's how here's how economists look at it, but just to sort of say here's how social scientists think about it, and here's a framework for thinking about the, what each of these disciplines has to offer. And the part of this that I think economics has offered is this is this sort of partly the starting logic of um, wars costly, and therefore we should be striving to avoid it. Because because economists start with this basic assumption of well let's we know that man's not rational and women aren't rational but let's start with this idea of Homo economicus and just see how far it gets us. Homo and, and economicus, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, right, but there's other you know there's um, there, there's there's other 
so, so we need that apparatus. And, and, and there, what we talked about with uncertainty and the, the strategic considerations of game theory, a lot of that was worked out by economists. Interestingly, it was worked out in the context of understanding labor strikes, uh, court battles, price wars, right? So these are other things that are super costly for businesses or individuals to engage in that they have incentives to avoid, right? So, so it's the same thing. Most, most companies don't have a labor strike every day. Mm -hmm. Right. They have because both lose. And so sometimes they happen. We need to understand why. Uh, but but most of the time they find a deal. Right. And and likewise, most cases don't go to court. They're settled out of court and so on and so on and so on. So there's this general insight and 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 this thing I've called uncertainty and the, the fear of bluffing is 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 one of the, the things that I think economics has helped us understand more systematically as one of these roots of war. Uh, many wars have been fought over religion. They've been fought over nationalities. Uh, but many also, and this is the reason I initially asked that question about economics, have been fought out of almost economic necessity. If you look at the tariff system, how it was starting to really ratchet up before just years before World War One, And then if you look at uh, the Third Reich's economy, it was, they were just spending and they really, they needed to do something about their economy. They could not continue that militarization uh, indefinitely. Um, it, it turned out to be a terrible decision, obviously. But uh, if you look at previous wars, many a times empires went to war just to get the riches of another nation. Yeah. Um, so what I hear from you though, is that that is only part of the reason it, it cannot because otherwise if that's the case then it, this makes wars so rational yeah you're, you're almost literally looking at you're calling your cpa to see whether or not you should go to war so okay so sometimes wars are rational and we'll get to that but actually I, i'd kind of say that's maybe what you said is in some ways a fallacy and it's a really common one but it's mm -hmm. an understandable one and the cause isn't necessarily irrationality the cause is the fact that the people who are deciding aren't accountable for the costs so let's think about these kings and queens of Europe, for example. Why would they go and try to grab the booty or the territory of another nation? Well, war is such an expensive gamble, right? And often they'd empty their treasuries and they would almost, they were almost always bad decisions in retrospect, right? <laughs> and and so, so they would empty their treasuries, the price of grain would go up at home, people would die, maybe they'd get overthrown, cut off heads, blah, blah, blah. The... The fact is, is that a lot of them pursued this booty because they they didn't have to worry about those people or some of those costs. Um, and and so so I, I think it almost never makes economic sense to go to war unless it's just in the private interests of a ruler. You know, I, I worked in Liberia for a long time, famous warlord named Charles Taylor. Well, yeah, he had an incentive to maybe start a war and, and keep it going for diamonds and 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 for gold and for timber and all this other stuff that he was able to sell and create a war economy. But but that's but it wasn't good for Liberia. It wasn't even good for his whole side. It was just pretty much good for Charles Taylor and his cabal. So it's just another example of these unchecked leaders uh, being economically incentivized simply because they 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 don't have to consider the interests of the people. You mentioned several reasons there are yeah. several reasons uh, that you identify in your book mm -hmm. um, specifically there are five reasons why we we we, we choose uh, conflict wins over compromise what are those yeah. five reasons so one we just talked about which is unchecked rulers they don't bear the costs uh another is this idea of uncertainty and that 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 war becomes a gamble in some circumstances Another is what I call ideological or intangible incentives. So it's when our our leaders ideological and intangible incentives. Right. So okay. so so that king goes to war not for booty but for glory. Or you said wars of religion, right? To exterminate the heretic. There are lots of these sorts of ethereal goals that we might have. Some grand vision of my group being superior over, over the other, or my place in history, or or, or, or something else that we pursue. And, and so we know war is costly, but we get this sort of ethereal thing mm. as a result of fighting. That's a whole other, and there's lots of those examples of that. And so that's a third. 
kind of reason to we but all again all of them are reasons we're overlooking or willing to pay the costs um so that's three that's three fourth i call misperceptions it's it's basically when are we as a society or mostly our leaders are biased in the sense that we are we're overconfident uh we underestimate the cost of this doing this thing so again we 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 basically we think the we we think we're actually more likely to win than we actually are or we think it's not going to be as ruinous as it turns out to be that's a very common kind of bias and misperception that that leads groups to go to war and it persists even you know in not just among individuals and autocrats but among big military bureaucracies and then the fourth sorry the fifth is um is is basically when we think our opponents unreliable and we can't they have, we think they have incentives not to not to keep any deal that we make and 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 so political economists this is another thing i think is gifted to us from economics call that a commitment problem so it's the idea like and and the and the classic example is your adversary is weak now but they're a rising power they're getting strong and so you know they have a advantage they're going to take advantage of that in the future and there's nothing they can really say to stop that um because why would why would why wouldn't they and and so you have an opportunity to attack now while you're strong and lock in your advantage forever and that's that's in some sense the preventative war that's the classic kind of commitment problem and that's like the fifth category that's like a preemptive war go to war so Correct. you don't get beaten later right and so so you know it's this was even surprising to me because i didn't know it when i started to catalog Basically, you know, there's a reason for every war and a war for every reason, but most of the wars in history, you know, this is a lens, right? I'm not saying believe my theory, everybody else is wrong. I'm just saying this is a new lens through which to look at everybody's theories. And, and it's a way of kind of classifying the way people explain wars. And then you can choose, oh, I think this person is right about World War I and this person's wrong. But now you have a way, a lens of like organizing this multitude of reasons that sometimes is so overwhelming, it just seems like it doesn't make any sense. Looking at war through your lens, um... when it comes to total war, such as between states, um are the lessons to be learned from smaller conflicts let's say between gangs um yeah. uh, or you know uh, clans yeah so that was the other thing i i i think was a real sort of eye-opener for me so my day job is i work with i've worked with you know rebel groups in sub-saharan africa and and um warring villages and ethnic groups i i've spent a lot of time uh working and, and understanding uh gangs and organized crime throughout latin america especially colombia and also here in my home city of chicago and what i realized is whether it's villages or gangs or, or rebel groups and civil wars a lot of the same principles that were shaping their conflict were the same principles that i was learning about or teaching about when it came to when it came to nations fighting and so obviously all these kinds of fighting are really, really different um, and, and, and social scientists just love to like subdivide and analyze. And that's partly how you make progress in science, right? Mm -hmm. But I thought there was a lot to learn from actually focusing on the commonalities rather than the differences. And so the book does that. The book is about how the same five, you can kind of look through this lens of fighting is costly, we strive to avoid it, and, and war is what happens when we ignore those costs or these five main reasons and and that explained the gang wars and the ethnic conflicts and the civil wars and the international wars that that I, that I think we see when it comes to gangs and clans especially clans uh, yeah. clans are by definition you know blood related uh, yeah unless there's another definition that uh, is, is is outside of that um shouldn't the calculus be a little bit different than war because now i'm telling you my older brother i'm goading you on to go to war with me you may die and my nieces and nephews and my sister-in-law may be without you know a father and and and, 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 a, and a husband so th does that make a difference and are they more likely uh, to reach a compromise than let's say a, a president or a, or an autocrat because because yeah. because your kin may die next to you right 
And we yep. see that in the history of war, when, when, when clans fought along each other, they were more likely to fight harder uh, yeah. because they were from the same village. I think some of that happened in World War I and you see it in earlier wars. So, you know, I think you've just in some sense captured that logic, which we've talked about, about which is that what happens when leaders are unaccountable for the costs and they don't have to consider everybody? Well, then they're more likely to go to war. But if you're related to everyone and you actually care about everyone in your group, and maybe because of yeah. your blood, maybe because you're elected, there's lots of ways in which we bind our societies, right? Mm -hmm. And and yeah, we might be more likely to go to war. In fact, there's a great paper that looks at um, votes in, in the US Congress for uh, conscription and for war over the last 150 years, 200 years. And they find that, um, and they look at they look at people who have they look at congressmen and women who have uh, children aged you know eighteen to whatever twenty four draft age, right? Uh huh. And maybe not surprisingly, uh, those <laughs> people are much less likely to vote for war, but only only That's an if interesting conversation. Yeah, only if the child sense. is a is a boy and not yeah. a girl. Interesting, interesting. That would be different in in in, uh, in countries where women are also drafted, obviously, like Israel. Um, is there is was there any particular single lesson that stood out, or single observation uh, that you had, whether in Liberia or in Chicago, mm -hmm. when you were looking at clans and gangs and villages, that you could extrapolate extrapolate uh, that observation to teach a lesson for? countries yeah. and empires and states this is how you compromise this is how you get to this point to uh you know maintain peace yeah i mean um so i mean one of the one of the ways i open the book is i talk about these gangs that i have been studying in medellin colombia which is a sort of prosperous industrial city that happens to have maybe 400 uh very well armed very well organized street gangs that oh, wow um, they're they're extraordinarily uh, profitable and powerful, and and every square inch of that city, even the upper middle income neighborhoods, is the territory of one gang or another. They, they call themselves combos, and so four hundred well armed gangs. Uh, that sounds like a recipe for violence. Yeah, it does. Um, but you know the the homicide rate there is maybe half of what it is in some you know chicago and some other large american cities with a with a gang problem and so what's going on well well one thing is like you don't make a lot of money from selling drugs in the middle of a gunfight and it's harder to collect extortion <laughs> yeah. right so everybody does have an incentive to avoid war and then and nobody likes the idea of soldiers their soldiers being killed or them being killed or ending up in jail or all the other terrible things that happen in gang war so there are always incentives but 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 in a lot of cities, gangs do fight because there's all this uncertainty and they're not particularly checked. They don't bear the cost. They might have their own intangible incentives like vengeance for fighting on and on and on. Somebody told me a story. So a lot of our time is spent, you know, we collect a lot of numbers on this, but we also talk to a lot of the leaders and we met one of them in prison, which is where we collect a lot of our qualitative information. One of them was telling us about a fight that broke out in his cell block over a game of pool where uh, he doesn't remember why it broke out, but one side pulls out their guns and fires on the other. Now, why they have they... guns in prison? Yeah, that's a whole other podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that I okay. can tell you, like the whole, how, how, how organized crime works is, is, is itself fascinating and super interesting. But the, the important thing here is, maybe not surprisingly, that started to turn into a series of, you know, revenge killings. And, and, and then every gang in the city, all of these 400 lined up be behind one or the other side as they kind of geared up for a citywide war, which has happened in the past. Uh, when gang war is broken out in Medellin, it's become one of the most violent places on the planet. Um, but the thing is, is there's a, there's a group of sort of shadowy higher level crime bosses and these, their groups are called razones and they reasons in Spanish. And they, they themselves have a little confederation that sometimes they call La Mesa, the table, or La Oficina, the office. And, um, and they lose the most money when the gangs go to war because they're the wholesale suppliers to the retail drug markets. Um, also, you know, the city hates 
gang war. And so they, when that happens, they, they, they tend to put these big guys in jail. And, and so, so they have strong, so what this, what La Ficina does is they, um, they stop the war from happening. So they are, are these gang leaders. Unchecked. How do they do it? Do they have their own military sort of? Well, a little bit. I mean, let's say, let's say you've got some unchecked gang leader who's ready to go to war against his rival because he doesn't bear the costs because he wants vengeance that's an intangible incentive maybe he's overconfident right that's the misperception we talked about there's three reasons mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well the the law officina is only too happy to use some very targeted sanctions which might be a threat of of death or replacement uh, or we'll stop supplying you drugs like they have a lot of levers of control over these guys to say whatever incentive you have for fighting we'll give you a counter incentive to the extent that there's uncertainty um that's driving this conflict well that's why they call it la mesa sometimes it's a table they'll sit them down bargain they'll share information and then to the extent there's a commitment problem meaning one side doesn't believe the other side will hold up to the deal well la oficina says we'll guarantee that deal and so la oficina is a little bit like the u.n security council uh but not <laughs> the U.S. security council doesn't really work well, neither does La Ficina all the time. Uh, there and there have been gang wars, but it works a little, right? It actually yeah. it reduces. It doesn't reduce all the uncertainty. It doesn't provide perfect commitment. It doesn't sanction everybody. It's uh, it's it's unjust and unequal and 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 inconsistently applied. Uh, but to some extent, it helps keep the peace. Uh, how how long do these stretches of peace last? There. So the most recent one has been about a decade. That's long. But, that's long. Uh, but you know, when occasionally La Ficina, when one of the big guys wants to go to war, right? So when one of the great powers decides it's in, then then that's when their UN Security Council falls apart. It's a little bit like, you know, if Russia decides it wants to go to war, you know, there's not much the UN Security Council can do. You yeah. know, if Mali wants to go to war, well, they have a little bit more leverage, right? And so exactly. the combos are like the Malis or the El Salvadors or the right and the in the in the Rosones are like the the United States or the or the Russias, and and so that's why I think our whole peace, our international institutions and peace building apparatuses and international criminal courts, all these things we've constructed, uh, they tend to work better when at controlling at, at 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 modulating conflict with these less powerful actors. And when a great power wants to go to war, well, we're not as effective. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Blattman as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Blattman, the war in Ukraine is total war for the Ukrainians. Obviously, we, we see that on TV all the time. But arguably, it has yet to become total war for Russia. Um, does that change your view of this war, the calculus for this war, and how, um, I don't know, the, its prospects for peace? Mm -hmm. Because one side is not suffering as much as the other side, obviously. Not even close. I think that's 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 definitely crucial. You know, in any conflict, right? If we said everything great, what does our lens focus us on? Our lens makes us laser focused on the costs of war, and the side that has a lower cost of war always has the bargaining advantage. It can also always demand more, and and might even have a, a an incentive to to wage this war of attrition and just wage the wear the other side down, and and that's that's actually that ability to threaten a war of attrition is is a bargaining tool to avoid war in the first place and so you know stepping back let's let's think about this it's a weird moment to say that war is rare or we have these incentives but 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 two things one is russia has wielded that threat effectively to cow most of its neighbors right and so it hasn't had to invade belarus to subjugate belarus and it didn't have to invade kazakhstan to send it to peacekeepers and on and on and on and on and on so it's it's achieved its it's these insidious sort of imperial aims 
through without without invading. And then and then here's here's the exception because of course sometimes we do fight. But even then, for 20 years, Vladimir Putin wielded every other tool in his toolkit to try to co-opt Ukraine without invading. So it was assassinations and dark money and poisonings and support for separatists and propaganda and on and on and on and on. So even then war was the last resort because it was so costly, right? So that's a useful thing to remember. The, the second thing is just briefly, like let's peer at this through our lens of these costs of war matter and, and why wars start. And, and you, can, you can see how these line up. Putin's the ultimate unchecked leader. He's a personalized dictator, so he could ignore costs. We are subject to any of his ideological or intangible incentives, which is our, our second thing, right? Which, so every story you hear about Putin pursuing personal glory or some vision of empire or trying to account for the humiliation of the last 20 years, on all of these are stories of he faces a cost of war, but he's willing to pay that price for some intangible or ideological incentive. Um, you also hear about misperceptions that he's isolated and insulated and overconfident which is probably true that's a misperception story it requires that there's uncertainty perception on his part about on his the war. Part. Yeah. yeah it also requires uncertainty right you can't have misperceptions without uncertainty first of all but also like yes surely he misperceived the strength of ukraine but also it was a gamble like who knew nobody knew really like three months ago who would have guessed that Ukrainian pluckiness and resolve and resistance and Western unity would be so strong and, and that the Russian military would be so weak. Those were all within the realm of possibility, but I think very few people guessed that that Russia would get bad draws in all three of those things, at least yeah. Vladimir Putin. So, mm -hmm. so there's a mix of uncertainty and misperceptions and we have to distinguish them as, you know, both are play. Um, so I think four of the five reasons really help us understand uh, this invasion um the the so then is it going to end and why isn't russia going to total war well well it still may but but war is really costly um and uh and so that's that's you know the, the treasuries are draining yeah right and and there's risks political risks for for putin um and and so that cost of war is is a constant incentive to find a settlement even if it's a stalemate Right, that's a kind of settlement, right? That's a kind of way of ending the violence. Is you don't, no, you don't like hug your, you know. There's no like universal, you know, love and brotherhood and sisterhood, but but you just at least agree to stop fighting. And I guess um, as long as he can save face. Well, you know, I don't even know that saving faces. You don't necessarily need that. And maybe that would that would help. Maybe, but you don't have to save face because remember, like, you know, I started off by saying most of the time wars don't happen, and we pay attention to the times we do fight. Well, actually, most wars, when they happen, are also short. We just happen to pay more attention to the long wars. And and so, and the Good reason point, wars yeah. are often short, and I don't mean like weeks, but I mean months, is because they're so costly. The treasuries do get drained. And there's only so many soldiers to mobilize. And and to go further is is, is risky and costly for even an unchecked ruler like Putin. So, so that's not to say that it won't turn into a long war, but just to maybe it's just helpful to recognize the sort of gravitational pull that peace has because fighting is really your worst your worst option. You talked about a city in uh, Colombia, and um, you talked about uh, um, sort of and sort of ombudsman group, the, the wholesalers. I'm not even going to try to butcher the names in Spanish. Rezonas, <laughs> is that what you said? Rezonas and- the, the, Rezonas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they sort of see one of these gangs uh, getting all fired up. They see that some sort of conflict is in the offing. Yeah. And they bring him to the table. Um, do you think, and I, I know this gets into politics, but I got to ask it here yeah. after all we talked about. Do you think- west missed a boat here they should have gone to putin uh, much earlier as this was brewing for the last four or five months saying look if you do a we'll do b if you do you know c we'll do d like laid it out it's mm -hmm. or was it the fact that because of lack of political interest in it they just missed it and the war started now it's sort of after the fact they all have united 
it, it kind of your this kind of doesn't yeah. follow the good example of that mm. city in Colombia. That's why I asked that. I said, is there anything to learn from gangs that you've studied? Yeah. So in this case, um, I mean, for all we know, they might have done that uh, with Putin and it failed. Because, oh, you mean behind closed doors? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, often these things do happen in secret. Now, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, personally, I think it's this is less a story about the West and Russia. I think it's more a story of Ukraine and Russia. To me, the question, the really crucial question is why Ukraine and Ukrainians didn't uh, basically concede, either either concede before the war broke out or after the invasion happened. Why didn't it look like Crimea when, where basically people just stood down and just let it happen? Because, because that's actually often what happens. Unfortunately, we, you know, peace isn't, doesn't have to be just. Peace can be the, the, the strong character um, throwing around their weight and getting the deal they want, which is what Russia has in Belarus and what Russia got with Crimea. So why didn't the Ukrainians, whether the politicians or the people, just do what seemingly most people do in these circumstances? Most weaker and, nations do. Yeah, sadly, that's, I mean, that's kind of the sad story of history. Yeah. Um, and and so and and so this is back to like these intangible ideological incentives. Like at the end of the day, um, I think part of the story is to say the Ukrainians said no. Like this thing that you're asking us to give up, which is our sovereignty and our independence and our freedom, um, is too valuable to us. We we will pay any price. So we know that fighting is costly. So and but but we're going to do it anyways. And so a lot of the intangible incentives and ideologies I painted were really ignoble. They were greed and glory and, 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 and exterminating the heretic or the ethno-nationalist ideal. But sometimes the things we fight for are, or at least I consider them noble. It's like liberty and, and independence. And there's a lot, and, and so, so we have this war because Ukrainians didn't, didn't consent to that kind of real politic. And, and that's, as it happens, that's also the story of the American Revolution. Right, a, 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 a unchecked tyrannical superpower offered its weaker colonists semi-sovereignty, and for lots of reasons, but principally ideological reasons and an attachment to liberty, they they said no way and they refused, and that's one of the most famous accounts of the American Revolution. Bernard Bailyn calls it the ideological origins of the American Revolution. Ideological think, origins. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, and it's and it's a terrific book and. Um, and the and, and in some ways that's the that's not to blame the Ukrainians any more than I blame the American Revolution. I became an I'm Canadian. I grew up Canadian. I have become an American. I admire their ideals. I will I, I will I will support a lot of freedom fighters. Um, so I admire that. But but that's partly also why this. It wasn't just that all these reasons that that Putin had an incentive to make such a terrible offer to Ukraine and 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 then to invade when they refused. But it also is because the Ukrainians refused to be rolled over like like so many others have been. During our break, um, you talked about uh, your study and some of the stories from gangs in Chicago that you had studied. Uh, I'd love for you to share that with our audience because, sure. uh, you know, we talked about gangs in, in a city in Colombia. I think it's another good anecdote here. Uh, it's instructive. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you so I moved to Chicago six years ago. And, and when you move to Chicago and you work on violence in Africa or Latin America, everyone's like, wait a second, there's violence here. Why don't you work here? And, <laughs> and I mean, one answer is, well, there seem to be a lot of people working on it here. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm trying to you know, do what I do best, but I did get drawn in because I was fascinated. Um, and so I've, I've been looking at, at sort of homicide and, and, and group warfare in in Chicago, because that's what a, a lot of gang violence. You is. call it group warfare. You don't. That's that's such a weighty word. To, well, to it is. You, you have these. You have these groups. Some some gangs are large and well organized. That's I think Chicago's historical gangs for that. I think they're a lot more fragmented now, but they're still groups of three, five, ten, twelve individuals. There they are, and they're and most of the homicides are targeted assassinations and targeted killings between them. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and so, so they're, 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 and, and why are they doing that? Well, again, you know, these, in my case, I think three of the five reasons in this lens provide a really good, good, good understanding for me. So first of all, they don't like to, like, it's really, 
actually, you know, it's really miserable to live this life with a warfare with other gangs because you can't, you know, you can't cross certain blocks and you're always looking over your shoulders. It is, it is, it is pretty miserable. So there's some incentives to avoid it, but nonetheless, there's an awful lot of shooting. Um, one reason is they're unchecked. So like a lot of the costs of that violence to their community, they don't bear. Also, there are these sort of intangible incentives. A lot of them are pursuing, it has a lot to do with blood feuds, right? And, and, and a lot of blood feuds are just, they're pursuing vengeance. That's, that war's costly, but I'm willing to go to war with this gang or, or do this shooting because you killed my brother or my friend, or you took a shot at me. And I'm willing to pay the price for this satisfaction. It's like a clan perspective. Yeah, it's very, it's very much like, and, and so that's, so they're not unlike, you know, the Corsicans or the Scots-Irish or something like that, who are also famous for these vengeant killings. But, but here's the thing. So, and we're very quick to jump to those. And I think they're true. The thing here's, let's go back to the strategic version. There's still, there's also some cold calculating reasons that gangs um, fight. And, and uh, you know, one of the leaders I met told me how uh, when, he, when he first started out, somebody stole his drugs. They thought he was weak. So they took his group's drugs. And he thought to himself, he said, you know, if I'm gonna stay in this business and I'm not gonna get myself killed, I have to do something. And I don't really want to do it, but I think I'm going to have to kill them. Uh, and so he did. You know, it, it was cold and cruel. Not take out a loan or go get do a fundraiser. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, some guys, oh, wow. listen, that's what was uncertain. Some guys, you steal the drugs and maybe nine out of the 10 of them uh, just decide they're going to go sell snow cones or work at yeah. Foot Locker or something like that, right? Like they don't, but because it was uncertain, but and he didn't, he didn't have his strength and his resolve written on his forehead for everyone to see but that he was resolved. So he said, well, this is what I got to do. And I've got to craft myself a reputation. Why? So why did he need to, and he, he had to kill a fair amount and to, to, to create that and then maintain it over time. So it was very, he talked about this, this, this sort of strategic calculus. So, and so you have to ask yourself, why did he have to construct a reputation? And partly it's because of uncertainty, because if we did have our strength and resolve on our forehead, then he would have never been robbed in the first place because they would have worked out. Um, they, his opponent didn't know what cards he held. And, and, and this, this is, this is a very powerful force for, for conflict in society. And so, and, and the thing I like to point out is this thing I've just said, a little bit of unchecked leaders, a little bit of vengeance, and a fair amount of need for reputation building because of uncertainty is also the way I explain the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. That, um, that that there was a desire for vengeance after 9-11 uh and the taliban would not seemingly turn over al-qaeda and 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 by the way they were sponsoring 49 other harboring 49 other groups that yeah you know, iran and russia and america and nobody really liked these guys um so there was a real need for vengeance but but why stay for 20 years i mean one way to look at it is that in 2001 america was not seen as was people are uncertain about just how strong or weak America was. Uh, seemingly, they were never willing to put boots on the ground. They pulled out of Somalia after the Black Hawk Down incident when a few yeah. American soldiers were killed. They didn't send anyone to Rwanda when the genocide happened. They did go into the Balkans, but only in the second war and and maybe only reluctantly and maybe only because it was in Europe and, you know, and, and, and so what really, and, and maybe they'd bomb a little bit, but what were they really going to do? So America, so you can look at the invasion as an exercise in reputation building to say, we have to send a signal to every other terror group or pariah state, what will happen if you attack us on our soil. And then if we either misjudge the enemy or we, we get unlucky, or we, we actually refuse to make a political deal for our own ideological reasons, they totally refuse to, 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 a political settlement with the Taliban after the successful invasion when they were mostly defeated. And so when they started to lose again, leaving would be a terrible signal, right? It would, exactly, it was smart thing, yeah. We it was the beaten. smart thing to do for that conflict, which was the stupidest thing to do from the perspective of reputation building into tearing every other would-be terrorist or pariah state. And so one way to look at America, there's lots, I think it's more complicated than how I've laid it out, but I think you, you can't ignore, I think, the strategic incentive to build reputation. And so, and I don't condone it any more than I condone this guy who killed for his drug sales, right? Like, I think we have yeah. to be, 
very careful um, about wielding violence and building reputation in this way. But I'm just trying to say, let's actually understand the strategic incentives and not and 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 not just sort of be armchair psychologists and say it's you know it's just an unchecked you know vengeance seeking George Bush administration. There's more to it than that. I suddenly find myself concerned for your safety as you keep on meeting with these gangsters <laughs> you go to um, um, sort of unstable uh, places. Um, if if you want to remember just to remember one point about war and prospects of peace in just 30 seconds, what would that be? I mean, it does go back to this core thing, like this lens where war is ruinous and, and the reason we fight is one is, is the reason that we ignore these costs. And uh and, and that when we do fight, there is this gravitational pull of peace. It's uh it's to me is it's so it it's true it happens to be a little bit optimistic and i think it turns us in it helps us if you diagnose peace better than war better then i think it also leads to better solutions of course yeah professor blatman thank you so much for educating me and our listeners you're welcome back to the peel out news anytime and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective thank you so much Thank you. That was great. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, it's to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.